this idea of the Antichrist. I'm sure when I say that term, it probably does all kinds of things to our emotions. It causes some of us to lean in, causes some of us to shudder away. It causes some of us to go to different thoughts that we've had, different things that we've read, different, different things that we've heard about who this figure is. At the end of the day, we want to get our idea from Scripture, don't we? And so all through Scripture, there are various things that are said about this figure. It's not just what we read in Revelation 13. I'm thankful to Dr. Danny Aiken, who puts together a list of what we see throughout Scripture. He says in 1 John 4, 3, we see a past and present impersonal force, presence or spirit, the evil spirit of this age. In 1 John 2.18, we are confronted with a literal person who are or persons who are forerunners of the final Antichrist to come. 2 Thessalonians 2, what we just read a few minutes ago, and Revelation 13, it's the final and climactic embodiment of satanic power and opposition to God in a person. And then in Revelation 13 and 17, it almost as if it is alludes to an evil empire or a political power. So what is this? What do we do with it? How are we to understand it? Well, we understand first that we need to have a posture of humility as we approach this passage, as we have through the entire book of Revelation so far. Humility that says, you know what, I may not have it all figured out. Humility enough to say there are other people who love Jesus who arrive at different points of view than I do in these matters. It leads to all kinds of speculation. It leads to all kinds of division. And what I think is most, most dangerous for us, brothers and sisters, is it leads to distraction. It leads to distraction. Here's the point. I think that Revelation 13 is given to us. I believe that Revelation is given to us. I believe that all prophecy in the Bible is given to us so that we may glance forward for the purpose of sharpening our focus now. And if we place our focus on what is forward, we will lose our perspective of where we are now. So let's enter into this study this morning and indeed any time the rest of the time we are in the book of Revelation with that understanding of glancing forward for the purpose of sharpening our focus now. And that's exactly how we are going to approach this chapter this morning. We see a lot of things that are prone to steal our attention and steal our focus. We want to know who this beast is. We want to know who the second beast is. And we want to decipher what seems to be codes there and things that show us what's going to happen in the future and try to like fit all the puzzle pieces together in order to get a complete picture of what's going on. But really, the message of Revelation 13 for us, I believe, is framed in two statements that we need to hear and the church needs to hear. It's two statements in the way of two exhortations. The first one calls us to endurance and faith. The second is towards the end of the passage, and it is a call for wisdom. So that will frame our study for the morning. Yes, we will walk through the passage and we'll talk about different views and we'll talk about even what I think is going on in some of these things. And we'll look at other passages and. We'll try to make some sense of it. But at the end of the day, I believe that those two exhortations are the messages that God intends for us to hear from his word. Okay, so we're going to dive right in. I'm not going to take the time to read all the way through the passage just for the sake of time. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Okay, 
So let's pray and ask the spirit to guide our time and then we'll jump right in to see what the scriptures say about these two new characters in Revelation 13. So, Father, I pray that you would guide our time this morning. God, give us that spirit of humility. Father, help us to focus our hearts on what they need to be focused on. What a wonderful song we just sang. The perfect song for entering into this study. As we walk through a lot of different matters that will seek to distract our hearts, God, I pray that our focus would be on Jesus. Turn our eyes to Jesus this morning. Help us to see him for who he really is. God, I pray that the fruit of our study this morning would be a hot, passionate pursuit of knowing you. So God, do that in our hearts today as we walk through this difficult passage. Thank you for the spirit in helping us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's walk through and let's first, let's just see what the passage says. And let's, I'll I'll offer a little bit of commentary along the way. We'll look at it verse by verse all the way down through uh, verse 8 at the beginning here as we look at the, the first beast that we are confronted with here. And then we'll go back and we'll see some things back through it. But let's begin there. Let's not let's not re- begin in, in chapter 13, verse one. As Gerald said last week, this final verse in in chapter 12 really sets up what we see in chapter 13. So back up there and look at 1217. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, this dragon that has waged war on the offspring of the woman. We know to be that those who are in Christ, those who are God's people, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, beginning in verse one. And I saw a beast, John writes, rising out of the sea with ten horns and ten heads and ten with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Let's unpack that a little bit. First, we see that this beast is rising from the sea. And there, again, commentators are split on what this is. Is it an actual sea? Is the dragon standing on a literal shore looking out into an actual body of water and the beast rises out of it? Maybe. Also, people say, perhaps this is pointing to the abyss that we've already seen. So it would seem to illustrate that the beast is coming from the same place that the dragon comes from. That is a possibility. If we look at it in context of the entire story, we are reminded that the ancient Israelites always had a fear of the sea. For the Israelites, the sea always pictured or envisaged for them uh, chaos and brokenness and threat and danger. And so there are some commentators who say that there is no literal sea, but it's rather symbolic of this of this beast rising out of the chaos and brokenness of humanity. That's a possibility. Look what it says about this beast. It says it has ten horns with seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. This likens it with the dragon. This should connect for us the beast and the dragon. It's pointing back to a very similar image that we get to the dragon. The commentators will tell us that these words perhaps mean some things that for horns, perhaps it's pointing to power that this beast will have. The heads, that there are seven of them, that's a picture of completeness, and it it points to ferocity and intelligence, that this beast has a high level of intelligence. The diadems, once again, point to authority and influence. So we see that this figure that will rise up is one of power. It's a ferocious uh, person with high intelligence. 
um, with great authority and influence. And we will see that play out through the rest of the chapter. And then it has blasphemous names on its head. So it's going to claim the authority of God. That's one form of blasphemy. But we can also see that this beast reflects the dragon's character. The dragon is the great blasphemer. And this beast will reflect the character of the dragon. Verse two, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Uh, This goes back to very similar language that we see in Daniel seven. And I'm not going to take the time to unpack that. But the vision that Daniel had there, all of those same terms, all of those same animals are used to uh, to speak of the beast that Daniel sees there. And of course, we know for that it was actual kingdoms with actual kings that were risen up that God used. So I believe that this is tying that whole story together. Once again, we see that there's one overarching narrative that's playing out. And to it, the dragon gave its power and his throne and great authority, it says. We see stewarded authority here. And we're going to see this idea of stewarded authority all the way through this passage. That the dragon gives this beast his power, his throne, and great authority. So everything that we see the beast doing, the dragon is behind the scenes. The beast is reflective of this dragon. Everything that he does, everything that he says is indicative of the dragon's intentions, of the dragon's character, of the dragon's plan. He is conducting it. He is carrying it out. And look what it says in verse three. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So the scripture seems to indicate that this figure, whether it's a literal person or not, um, has been wounded in some way that has either has either killed them or taken them to the brink of death. And now that wound has been healed. And because of that, all of humanity is just dazzled by this. And all of humanity is 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 responds in a couple of ways. First, they follow the beast because of this mortal wound that has been healed. They marvel at it. They follow him. But look at verses four and five. They worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. It leads them not only to give their worship to this beast beast that was mortally wounded, they worshiped the dragon and they worshiped the beast saying, and listen, brothers and sisters, see if something doesn't ring in your minds when you hear the song of the people in their worship of the beast. They say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Does something ring in your ears there? We're going to talk about that later, but something should ring in our ears there. That should make the hairs on the back of our neck stand up in a sense. Verse five, and the beast was given a mouth. We see this play all throughout the scriptures, even back to Daniel seven. Listen to what the vision in Daniel seven included. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So the beasts of Daniel's description go on and we see that they are kingdoms that rise up and kings that rise up through those kingdoms. And they all have mouths to proclaim certain things. And we see that in Daniel 11 and the king. This is who the beast is pointing to. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of God's. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. And then fast forward to second Thessalonians that we just read in Paul's description of this man of lawlessness. 
And he speaks of him as he who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. We see this theme of blasphemy running through all the way through the passage. We see over and over that the horns contain blasphemous names, that he uses blasphemous words. In verse six, he's going to utter blasphemies. So we can see in this the character of the dragon. And the beast was given a mouth and with that mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Verse five goes on to say, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, let's pause here. Up until this point, we see that the dragon has stewarded his authority to the beast. Now, whose authority is being spoken of, do you think? I don't think it's the authority of the dragon that he's giving him to do this for 42 months. I think it's back to God's authority here. That he is uttering these things, that he is serving in this way, that he is doing these things, that humanity is responding to him. But it was allowed to exercise authority only for 42 months. Now, if you ascribe to the idea that there is going to be a literal seven years of great tribulation, if that if that is your position, those who hold to this position say that this is the back half of that seven years. That this is the final half of it. Forty two months would be roughly half that time. Either way, we can see that this beast's reign is short lived. It has a it has a time constraint to it. It's for forty two months. Verse six, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies and notice that it utters, utters blasphemies in three ways. First, it utters blasphemies against God. Second, blaspheming his name. And third, blaspheming his dwelling. Up until this point, we've been confronted with this image of the temple, and it has been a picture of safety for God's people. Now notice how verse 6 goes on to fill out an understanding of what this dwelling is. Notice what it says there. That is, those who dwell in heaven. The dwelling of God are his people. Are his people. Revelation 7.15 will go on to say, Therefore they are before the throne of God. And serving him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So we see that this beast not only utters blasphemies against God. Blasphemes his name. And blasphemes his people. His dwelling. Verse 7. And also. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints. And to conquer them. Now this word conquer is. Is a word that should stick out to us and maybe even make us a little bit uncomfortable. What does it mean that the beast will conquer them? Well, the word carries the idea of killing them bodily. That we see that this is going to be a bloody assault on the people of God. That the beast is given permission. It is allowed to make war on the saints. And really, this is a culmination of what we just saw at the end of chapter 12. It's a culmination of this war that it's going to be a bloody war against the people of God. But let's be reminded of what it says in Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And finally, the end of chapter or verse seven there on into chapter uh, verse eight. And the authority was given it over every tribe, every people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. And then notice the qualifier Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. Here we see once again God's sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that those who are his are his. Those who are his are his. And so he is allowed to make war on the saints, but they are eternally secure in him. So what do we make? What sense do we make of all of this? 
Well, our tendency is to try to understand this through a political lens. So much of what I see written about these chapters have to do with kingdoms and nations and governments and authorities on earth. We're constantly trying to fit all the puzzle pieces together to try to identify where such a figure would come from and what kind of kingdoms embody the type of things that we see in Revelation 13. But brothers and sisters, our primary lens in reading this passage must be theological. It must be theological. We must understand what is going on here theologically. And we must seek to understand it within the context of the big story of the scriptures. We can't just divorce it from that. The vision that John receives here in Revelation is not divorced from the rest of the scriptures. Indeed, it alludes many times to the rest of the story. So we have to understand it within the context of the big story. And we'll see why that's important here in a few minutes. We see a picture of our enemy here. Get this. That mimics the living God in order to deceive and turn his creation away from him. We see the picture of a great mimicker. Working back through it, as I read through this passage several times this week, it became very apparent to me, these parallels that we see. I want you to think about the Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead for just a second. I want you to think about the relationships that are there, the roles within the Godhead, all of that. And let's think about through that as we walk back through and see the evil one mimicking that through this passage. Here's the list that I put together this week. First, in verse one, the beast proceeds from the dragon and bears his name. Also in verse one, the beast bears the dragon's likeness and character. Verse two, the dragon stewards the beast's great authority to carry out his own mission. Verse three, the beast bears the marks of a mortal wound. This is a picture of resurrection. And if you go back to the text, the word that is used there, the terminology, I think it's so important that we see the terminology here. The, the term that that refers to him being mortally wounded literally means as slain to death. It's the same term that's used of the lamb earlier in Revelation. There's a mimicking that's happening here. Verse three, the beast had risen to new life and new authority. Also in verse three, people from all nations worship the beast. Verse five, the beast does the dragon's will and speaks the dragon's message, seeking to turn humanity's hearts and worship toward him. Verse seven, the beast makes war against the dragon's enemies. And I think it's interesting that both Jesus and the beast are said to yield swords and then also in verse seven, the beast is stewarded global authority and receives worship from every tribe and nation and tongue. My initial reaction to this is we have an enemy who is not original at all. He presents himself to be God. He sits himself in the place of God. He speaks out of where only God can speak out of the scriptures speak of Satan as an angel of light. He's also a chameleon. Nothing more than a mimicker of what he desires to be, but indeed will never be. He desires to be worshipped and treated like God. And we see that all through this passage. So what is the identity of the beast? Well, you're going to see a theme for me. I think it's multi-layered. I don't think there's one answer. I believe that Revelation 13, 1 through 10 reveals an evil spirit that is at work and has been at work in our world ever since sin entered into God's good creation in Genesis 3 and has been actively at work through powers and authorities throughout the ages. 
I also believe that there have been individuals that have embodied the spirit of this figure throughout history. And indeed, people have tried to point to different figures throughout history to try to say that is the Antichrist. Well, I don't think that they're completely wrong. I also believe that Revelation 13, 1 through 10 reveals a literal future figure. I believe that he will be the culmination in some of this spirit of Antichrist. But regardless of identity, we see in verses 9 and 10 the purposes of this part of John's vision. Look at it with me and see what the exhortation begins there in verse 9 is saying, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. We see that refrain throughout Scripture, don't we? We need the Spirit's help to help us understand what's going on, to help us know how to react and how to respond. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then the first part of verse 10 makes clear that God's people will indeed face hardship and persecution through this war waged by both the spirit of Antichrist and the person of Antichrist who is to come. Look what it says there in verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, they must be slain. Do you hear the intention with that? Brothers and sisters, listen to this. There is no prosperity gospel in Revelation 13. There is no prosperity gospel in Revelation 13. That as we follow Christ, we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And we bear within our bodies the marks of Christ. We share in his suffering. And indeed, as this day draws nigh, we will more and more share in his suffering. There is no prosperity gospel here. And here is the exhortation that we are called to hear. Here is a call for in, for the endurance and faith of the saints. We are at war. We are at war, brothers and sisters. And we are at war, the scriptures tell us, not against flesh and blood, but the principalities of darkness. We are at war and we must be sober to that. We must not be taken surprised by this. We must be sober minded. I love the fact that Peter uses that term three times in his short epistle. Be sober minded, be sober minded, be sober minded. This call to endurance and faith comes in the context of the story of redemption, the whole story, the big story of redemption. And our endurance is not based on our own strength. John is not calling us to conjure up strength within ourselves so that we may endure against this. The basis, in fact, I love this. Look back at verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. The very thing that causes humanity outside of Christ to marvel at the beast is the very thing that is the basis of his undoing. I love that. And it's told through the entire story of the scripture. We're told there in verse three that one of the beast's heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Gerald reminded us last week that the very first proclamation of the gospel in scripture doesn't come in Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. It comes in Genesis three. And it is spoken to whom? Do you remember? It is spoken to the serpent. And that gospel proclamation is that there is a seed of a woman coming and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And later in Colossians 2.15, we're told of Jesus's work, atoning work for us through his life, death and resurrection, 
Verse 15 in in Colossians 2 tells us that he, Christ, has put the enemy to open shame by triumphing over him. And we share in that because we are united with him. That is the mortal wound. In fact, this word wound carries the idea of plague. It's used the rest uh, throughout the rest of Revelation and, and, and it is interpreted often as plague. This is the plague. This is the wound that our enemy bears that points to his ultimate demise. The very thing that causes humanity to bow in him, bow to him in worship should cause us to endure because we know that he's a defeated foe. It's all through the scriptures. I love what Johnson says, a commentator. He says the beast's only real enemy seems to be the saints of Jesus, whom he effectively destroys. But little does he realize that in the death of the saints, the triumph of God appears as they die. They do so in identification with the slain lamb who through the cross has decisively conquered the dragon by inflicting on him a truly fatal wound. So in light of that, the word to us, the exhortation to us is endure. And there's a theme that runs through the book of Revelation of overcoming. We see it through the initial letters that are offered there to every church is this message of overcoming. Revelation 12, 17. I've read this verse a couple of times, but listen to it again with a different emphasis. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who listen, keep the commandments. That's endurance of God and hold to that's endurance. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Revelation 17, 14 says they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 21, 6 and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Verse seven, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, this exhortation to us is an exhortation to press into the truth. To press into Christ, to press into the true gospel. And we do that by faith. The exhortation is to endurance and faith. We endure through faith. We press into faith and faith is active. Faith is not just the belief in some propositional truth. It is an active faith. You see, here's the truth. Faith is what moves the gospel from concept to way. And I'm here to tell you, it is not enough for us to believe the gospel in concept This faith is not a mental ascent to the truths that we see in the scripture. It is a truth that works its way into our bones and shapes our lives. That's what faith is. Faith is when we lay our lives out through the truth that we see in the scriptures to test it and see that he is good. Faith is what moves it from concept to way. But here's the great danger, I believe, for us is biblical illiteracy. We can't lay our lives out through truth if we don't know the truth. And we live in a context where believers are discipled by things around them far more than they are of the scriptures. Are we pressing into truth? Are we pressing into the scriptures? You see, faith is believing what God has revealed and aligning our lives with it, even when everything around us is pressing us in a different direction. And this must uh, and this must increasingly be the trajectory of our lives. Uh, 
See, the gospel endurance guards us against pragmatism. And that is the great danger that we see in Revelation 13. That's the great danger of our day. When the going gets tough for us who follow Christ, will we trust him or will we do what's easy? Will we trust him or will we continue to swim with the flow of the culture around us? Because that's the easy thing to do. Gospel endurance guards us against pragmatism. You see, we are to move in the way of the gospel, which will move contrary to the way of this world. We can endure because we know that our enemy is already defeated. We saw that in Second Thessalonians. Jesus will kill him by the heat of his mouth and bring him to nothing. And we can endure because we know that if we are in Christ, we are sealed by him, held by him, protected by him, belong to him, safe in him because we are united with him. That's the basis of our endurance. It is that our name is written in the Lamb's book. It's not because of our own strength and holding on to our salvation. Our names are written there and they cannot be erased. John MacArthur says it this way. Believers are doubly secure because the book of life belongs to the Lamb who has been slain. Not only the decree of election, but also the atoning work of Christ seals the redemption of the elect Forever. And though our enemy rage against us, we can endure because we know that as fierce as he is, Satan is on a leash. And although he brings chaos and destruction with him, he does it only for 42 months. His days are numbered. And so we're called to lean into it. We're called to endure through it. Through faith, through believing. The gospel is a call for us to believe, not to do. And it's in our believing that we do. It's a call to endurance and faith. And do you know this, brothers and sisters? I was reminded of this this past week. You want to hear something cool? There is, there exists exactly zero threats to the gospel. Did you know that? There can be no threat to the gospel. The gospel is the cosmic, eternal pronouncement that Jesus is king. Nothing can threaten that. There can be threats to our faithfulness. There can be threats to our obedience. There can be threats to the way that we steward that gospel. There are no threats to the gospel. Do we live in that confidence every day? We should read Revelation 13 with that confidence. There is no threats to the gospel. Nothing can threaten it. He is sovereign. He is in control and his purposes cannot be thwarted. There are no threats to the gospel. Beginning of verse 11, we are introduced to a second beast. Let's work through that together. Verse 11, then I saw another beast. This beast later in Revelation will be revealed to be a false prophet, a false prophet in 1613 and 1920. I believe that that points back to this beast. So here we have yet another character introduced. And instead of maybe being a political, more of a political leader, this is more of a religious leader, which points to even further forms of deception. Notice what it says about this beast rising out of the earth. I don't know what to make. I've read about this and I still am not really settled on what this means, that one comes from the sea, one comes from the earth. I tend to believe that it's just talking about both of them coming out of humanity, coming out of humanity. But I'm holding that loosely. Maybe you can do some more reading on that later. Okay, but notice how it is described here. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns. Notice this, like a lamb. 
It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. So here's another beast, two horns, less horns, possibly less authority than the first, but working in tandem with the other beast. But it says here that this one has two horns like a lamb. Here we see more mimicking of God. I think it's interesting that the word lamb is used 29 times in Revelation. And here is the only time that it is used of anything other than Christ. And the evil ones mimicking of him. But its true character is revealed through what it says. It spoke like a dragon. Its words reveal its true character. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 7:15. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Perhaps for us religious type in the room, we should take note a little bit more of this beast. And the dangers we have of listening to those who are clothed as lambs, but are really wolves. Listen to what it goes on to say. Verse 12, all of these statements, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16. It's going to tell us all of the things that the lamb does. Listen to what it says. The false lamb, I should say. Verse 12, it exercises all authority of the first beast. So here is further stewarded authority. The dragon stewards his authority to the beast, the first beast, the first beast stewards its authority to the second beast. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So a couple of things here I think are important. Number one, this authority that has been stewarded. His 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 power has been his authority has been stewarded from the first beast, the first beast from the dragon. All of it is only allowed because a sovereign God allows it. I love what Dr. Aiken says. He says there is no true power in evil, no true power in evil. Next, it seems to indicate here that there's going to be some kind of a unified world religion of everything in Revelation. I think that could be the greatest miracle. You agree? Look at our world today. Could you even imagine? I can't even imagine that what it would look like. But if you listen to where our world is and what people are saying, there are already movements in this direction. We need to be aware of that. I believe that there is coming a day where everyone will unify. It also gives us the idea of forced worship. It says and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Notice verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down. Here is further mimicking. This mimics the two witnesses who were allowed to call down fire. It also mimics biblical characters that we know like Elijah and Elisha who could do that. So further mimicking of God and his story here performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. This also affirms Paul's description in 2 Thessalonians 9. Or two verses nine through twelve says this: the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to, to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Is this a is this a vision of God losing? No, He causes the delusion. God is sovereign. He gives them over the ones who have rejected him to worship this beast. He gives them over to it. Even there, we see the sovereignty of God at work. And notice verse 14, another response. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those 
One commentator said, this is our chief enemy. Our chief enemy is diabolical deception. Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So here, the second beast forms an image. I don't know if this is going to be a statue. I don't know what it's going to be, but it seems to indicate that something is erected to point people to worship the first beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Here again is the mimicking of God through language. This word lived is the same word used for Jesus' resurrection in Revelation 2.8. All kinds of overlap in, these, in this language. So once again, we see the mimicking aspect of this beast. Verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. There are options here, as Gerald says. Some people believe that this will be a statue that is erected and this beast will be allowed or able to speak breath into it or breathe breath into it and bring it to life. I don't tend to believe that. I think some other commentators are, 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 are getting more at it here by saying that the erection of this statue will simply breathe new life into this movement and more people will be caught up into it. Either way, those are both valid possibilities that could be going on here. But once again, we see mimicking by this beast. Revelation 11, 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, speaking of the two witnesses, and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. It's interesting that everyone rejected these two witnesses, but everybody falls in worship to the beasts. Further mimicking that's here. And further forced worship. And it gets worse. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down and worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Very similar there. So what we see through this is that the response of people to this beast, to these beasts, is intellectually attracted. They're intellectually attracted to it. They're emotionally drawn to it. They are convinced by signs, and in some cases they are even forced to worship in verse 16, it also causes all to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, all both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave. There we see a great equalizer here. It, it catches everyone up so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. What in the world do we do with this? Well, we see that there are going to be economic ramifications for those who do not worship the beasts here. Now, is this mark a physical mark? It could be. It could be. But as I work through Revelation, as I have with Gerald so far, I see a contrast here between the mark of the beast and the sealing of the spirit on the forehead. And because the seal of the of the spirit is not a physical mark, I tend to believe that this mark is not a physical mark. Now, you may ask if there's no physical mark, then how can you carry out the economic sanctions and all these things that seem to happen? Well, brothers and sisters, we see this alive and well in our world today. Gerald was talking to one of our partners this past week, and he found out that in the throes of the pandemic that we experienced last year, this place uh, struggled way more mightily than we did with the pandemic. And what they saw there was that believers did not receive the aid from the government that everybody else did. They don't have a physical mark, but something marks them. And the government there is cracking down. 
on Christianity. So there, there were economic sanctions because they are choosing to walk the way of Christ rather than walking in accordance with the culture. Just this past week, I heard a story of a family in the Midwest who owns a farm and for years have done business at the local farmer's market. But because uh, over the past couple of years, they have refused to hold same sex weddings on their land. They have now been banned from doing any business at the local farmer's market. Brothers and sisters, it's going to cost us to follow Christ. There's no prosperity gospel here. Again, listen to what David Platt says. Mark it down. There will always be a price to pay for believers who do not worship the idols of this world. Life will not be easy in this world when you fight the idolatry of this world, plain and simple. So we see here that there are not only um, there are not only bloodshed, but there's economic sanctions put in place. So what do we do with this? Well, we need to take note of the other exhortation in this passage there given in verse 18. The exhortation is this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. And look what it goes on to say. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is six, six, six. Once again, this is met with tons of speculation. All kinds of speculation, all kinds of division, all kinds of distraction because of this. Uh, Many people have pointed to the game called Gematria, where we take Hebrew names, Hebrew letters, and there are uh, numeric values ascribed to those letters. And if we do the sum total of names, it will give us specific numbers. And perhaps John is playing that game here of Gematria to try to identify someone. And really, it's pretty fascinating to look into this a little bit. Number one, if you take the numeric value of the word beast, you get 666. That's a pretty big deal. Also, which would have been relevant in John's day, Nero Caesar spells out 666. And it's really interesting when you get into the story of Caesar there. Now, there are all kinds of speculation, all kinds of myths that run rampant. But what we do know from history is Caesar or Nero, after he committed suicide, he had he had incorporated all kinds of harsh persecution against the people of Christ, the the people who were Christians. And when he uh, committed suicide and died, uh, much of that ceased. And so there was a period of peace that. Uh, that they experienced for about a dozen years. But after that time, Vespian came to power and he and his sons reinstituted a lot of the same protocols that were in place during Nero. And so many people point to that and say, perhaps this was the mortal wound that was resurrected. It wasn't the resurrection of the man, but the resurrection of his policies. And it's interesting that his name spells out 666. Other people have tried to play other games even remarking that perhaps 666 pointed to Ronald Wilson Reagan because all of those names have six letters. People point to a physical mark, social security cards, microchips, tattoos, vaccines. Individuals throughout history have been have been likened to this number of 666. Stalin and Hitler, all of the reformers pointed to the pope. So all through history, there's been all this speculation of who does this refer to? Well, let's work this out for a second. Number one, John never employs gematria anywhere else, but does use numeric symbolism in abundance. Now, that does that mean that John would not use it in this one instance? I don't think we can say that. I don't know. But it's just interesting that he never employs it anywhere else. Irenaeus wrote that John is using gematria. 
but we should not try to figure it out. Polycarp, who discipled Irenaeus, um, who was who was discipled by John, points to John's epistles and points to the spirit of the age that's at work. I think it's interesting that those guys had that to say. But once again, we must understand the theological significance first. And we must hold up this idea of 666 next to the holy number of 777. And I believe that Revelation 12 and 13 present an unholy trinity that is utterly complete in its incompleteness. Because it's three numbers, it is complete. That's a picture of completeness. But because they all fall one digit short of the perfection of seven, it is a complete incompleteness. One commentator puts it this way, the uh, demonic parody of the perfection of seven. That is who is presented in Revelation 13. Together, they are six, 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 and not now or ever will they be seven, seven, seven. I think the answer is found once again in multiple layers. First, John very well could be using Gematria. And that designation could point to both the apostate worldly power of his day and forward to a coming apostate power that will be greater than ever uh, even Nero could have ever conceived. I think it's possible that that is going on. Also, it represents myriads of leaders, authorities and kingdoms down through the ages that have been empowered through the spirit of 666, this mark of the beast. I believe most profoundly, though, that it symbolizes the ways and symptom or systems of evil that permeate our world. One commentator said, wherever there is blasphemy, there the beast's name is found. I think there's truth to that. I believe that this vision of John contains both foretelling and forthtelling, as much of biblical prophecy does. I had a professor in college that really helped me understand this aspect of prophecy. That actually very little of prophecy is foretelling just for the purpose of revealing the future. Most of it is foretelling, speaking something into the culture now with a relevant message for now. I think it's both. Much of prophecy is almost like a mountain range. I'm from East Tennessee. And so for four years, I drove to my high school, Heritage High School, on 321 as you head toward um, Cades Cove. That was my drive to high school every morning. Beautiful setting with the mountains, the foothills of the Smokies right there uh, surrounding our school. And I can tell you that as you drove down the road, you saw as if the Smoky Mountains were just one line of mountains. But as you get nearer to it and you begin to drive into the foothills, you begin to see that there are layers here. And there are mountains in the foreground and there are mountains in the, the far ground. And, and the, the, together they make up the mountain ridge. That's how we need to seek to understand prophecy. Is that many times it has a meaning for right now. In the scriptures it had a meaning for right then. It was being conveyed, but it also had a meaning for later. And I think John is doing both foretelling and forthtelling here. In any regard, the exhortation to John's readers, to us who are looking at this vision and reading it, is for wisdom. Wisdom, brothers and sisters, is discernment in action. It's discernment in action. And how do we attain it? How do we attain wisdom? By pressing into and focusing on that which is perfect, complete, genuine, and true. We don't need Wisdom from all of the books that have been written on prophecy. And we don't need wisdom from all of the people that have uh, written about opinions and all of these things. Those things are okay to get into, but we must be careful that we don't allow that to read into how we understand the scriptures. 
Ultimately, we pursue wisdom by pressing into and focusing on that which is perfect, complete, genuine and true. I've been reminded this week of Paul's message in Colossians 2. Turn over there. Colossians 2, I want you to see this. Colossians 2. Listen once again to his exhortation there, beginning in verse 6. To set the context, Paul is speaking into the life of a church that is in the context of a culture that's much like ours. When you walk outside the, the doors of the church in Colossae, you are just confronted with all of these different philosophies and ideologies and perspectives. And Paul, in speaking into this church, I don't think he's speaking to one threat that's coming into the church. I think he's speaking into all of them. That's one of the reasons why I love the book of Colossians so much. I see so much overlap in their culture and ours. But notice that Paul's corrective for all of those false ideologies, all of those false philosophies remain in Christ. That's the answer. Look what he says. Verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then look where he, look where he goes right in verse eight. After that admonishment, after that exhortation, look and see what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Pause. Who is Paul's audience right here? He's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers. So we must see that it is possible for us who are in Christ to be taken captive by philosophies that are contrary to him. Look at what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And here's the here, here's the catch. And not according to Christ. Christ is to be the measure of all truth. He is the measuring rod for all truth. And we have been filled in him. If we are in him, we have been united with him. Listen to what it says in nine and following for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him. Also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, brothers and sisters, we gain wisdom by pressing more deeply into the one who is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. And here is the truth. If you leave with anything today, leave with this. Our response should not be frantic flight, but intense pursuit. Our response to Revelation 13 should not be hand wringing. Brothers and sisters, why do we fear some mark of the beast if we are securing Christ? We act sometimes like we have to be so scared that if I get this or do that or go here, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. We don't have to be 
frantic and we don't have to flee everything that we see. We do need wisdom and discernment and we don't get that through flight. We get it through pursuit. Paul or John's words for us here, Jesus's words for us through his word is to press into him. And it's through our pursuit of Christ. It's our growing in him. It's our continuing in him that will guard us against any of these dangers. Where is our confidence? Our confidence should be in him. Revelation 13, all of Revelation should press us more deeply into Christ. So here's the application, and it's in the form of a central question for us. And I want us to see something. Turn back to Revelation 13. I want you to see this. The more I read, the more I studied, the more I kind of sat in this passage this week. The more I was confronted with the fact that this chapter is so tragic. So tragic. Go back to that refrain of worship by humanity in verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That should have rung in our ears because of the refrain that we see all through scripture. Exodus fifteen eleven: who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Psalm 89, 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid, for I have told you from of old and declared it. And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I I know not any. Isaiah 46, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that they may be alike? Micah 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. You see, the proclamation of verse 4 here is a tragedy because it is a mockery of our created purpose. God created us as worshipers in his image to glorify him by imaging him in everything that we did with our mouths, with our hands, with our feet, with our minds, with our hearts. Everything that we are should be returned to him in worship. And this refrain in verse four is a mockery of that. It is an affront to the eternal God who created us in love. And what is astonishing is that it seems through John's vision that even those who profess Jesus as Lord will be led astray into such blasphemous worship. And brothers brothers and sisters, for us today, we need to be aware that this is the bent of our sinful flesh. That we are prone to wonder. And so the question that confronts us this morning is, what has our allegiance this morning? What has our affection this morning? 
What has our attention? What has our passion? What has our ambition? It is possible, maybe not for us to see someone, know that they are the Antichrist and worship him, but it is possible for us to get swept up in the spirit of Antichrist by going with the flow in our culture and loving what the world loves and doing what the world does and giving all of our time, talent and treasure to other things other than the one who is worthy of it. This chapter is a tragedy. And the effect of Revelation 13 should not be a pressing ourselves into the mystery, seeking to work the puzzle of interpretation and identity. It should be to focus our hearts ever more so intently on the one who is genuine and true. Brothers and sisters, abide in him. Abide in him. And this glimpse of the future should be enough to focus our hearts on that right now. May it be so. Let's pray together. God, I pray that that would be the result of our time in your word this morning. I pray that it would focus our hearts on you. Lord, we don't know all the answers. We don't know exactly what this is going to look like in the future. We don't. It's not a bad thing to speculate. It's not a bad thing to have conversations or to read books or to seek meaning. But God, more than anything, I pray that we would press into you. Lord, there's great danger to us right now through the spirit of Antichrist that is alive and well in our world today. And Father, I believe that it, it, it's there in many of the ways that we see in this chapter, that there is a religious tone to it, that it mimics itself after you. And I look around our world today and I see people wear, waving the banner of Christ, but they do not bear his name. God, that is dangerous. So God, I pray that you would focus our hearts on you. Help us to lean into you, to pursue you. Father, I pray that our reaction to this would not be frantic flight away, that we would wring our hands, worried the next step that we're going to take, that somehow we can void what you have done. God, help us to rest in our salvation in you. And Father, help us to press into you so that we'll have the assurance of that salvation. God, for anyone who is here today who is not in Christ, Father, I pray that they will see the danger of that. Lord, to see all that you have done in your life and your death and your resurrection, all that you have done to reconcile us to the Father, and I pray that you would bring that person to repentance today, to trust in you and to trust in you alone so that they can have that confidence as we approach this time in history that's coming. God, as they can approach our world right now in the way that we live in it, God, help us to encourage one another by pressing each other into the word and pressing each other into you. Help us to see that responsibility that we have for each other. And help us to call each other to believe in the gospel. Not just as concept, but in the very way of our lives, as your spirit does the work of sanctification in our hearts. So God, thank you for your word today, Father. Be with us now as we enter into a time of response. And God, I pray that we would respond to you in worship. We would respond to you perhaps in repentance and confession. But Lord, above all, we would just worship you for who you are. So thank you, God, for this time that we've been able to share together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.